We want to pray this morning to you, our Father, and ask you that you would make your name hallowed, that you would hold of it in all the earth. Father, this morning we've sung your praise, we've heard from your word, we have prayed to you, and we come before you again now asking that you would be with us as we turn to your word and as we seek what you would have us to see and understand from it. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work to convict us of sin, that you would unearth those, um, maybe those pet sins that we've allowed to uh, be covered up and we've decided to kind of forget about and we've entertained. Father, we pray that you would unearth those things, that we would repent of them and turn from them, and that we would trust in the righteousness of Christ, that we would be holy even as you are holy. For that's your call, that's your calling in our lives. And you have made us holy in Christ. You have given us a righteousness that is not our own to be received by faith in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that our salvation does not rest on what we do, merely what we say, the ways that we fall short, but rather it is founded and on the perfected work of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Father, we want to be the kingdom people he's called us to be. And we want to ask that you would use your word now to shape and to mold us into that, that we would glory in the gospel and we would glory in the name of Christ and that we would bear your name as a faithful people. And Father, this morning we want to come before you and ask that the good news of the gospel would go out everywhere. We thank you, Father, especially for our missionary partners who have, you have sent out to the different places uh, in, in, uh, throughout the world uh, to do this great kingdom work. And Father, this morning we want to pray especially for Phil and for Lori Hunt. We thank you, Father, for our relationship with them and for their work that they're doing in Zambia. Father, we want to pray that you would equip Phil as he leads as the president of the Central Africa Baptist University and also as he serves and pastors alongside the other pastors you have raised up uh, to serve in their church and the partner churches. Father, we pray that through that ministry that, um, that people who have never heard the gospel would come to hear it and they would believe it, that they would be saved and they would live in the life of Christ. Father, we also want to pray for, um, for the elders of those churches that you would guide and direct them in making good decisions, that they would lead those churches well. I pray that you would protect them uh, from, from sin, protect them from any sort of corruption, and keep them in um, leading the flock that you've entrusted uh, to them well. Father, as we pray for your people and for the mission of the church abroad, we also want to pray for the mission of the church here in Sheboygan. Father, we love our community, and we thank you for the way you've placed us here, and also for the way you have called other brothers and sisters to be faithful ambassadors here. And so, Father, this morning we want to pray for our brothers and sisters at Sheboygan Evangelical Free Church, and for their pastor, Gary Highlander, as he preaches. Father, I pray that they would, in their ministry, keep the cross of Christ center, and that the gospel would be their main calling. And that you would use them in their witness to um, to call uh, to to faithfully share that message with their neighbors, with their coworkers, with each other, and that through that your kingdom would continue to grow and expand as people come to see their need for salvation and that they trust in Christ. Father, we also want to come before you. We thank you for the way that you have placed us in this nation and for the way you call us to pray and to make intercession for those who who lead us. Uh, Father, last week we entrusted the election with all its results to you, and we want to come before you now on the Sunday after, and we want to thank you that you are a great and good king, and that you rule and reign, and that you grant authority and take it away. 
And so, Father, this morning we ask for those who have, especially those who have been elected, the newly ones, uh, newly elected, and, and those who are continuing on in their tenure, I pray, Father, that you would um, be with them, that they would not put their own needs first, but the needs of those whom they serve, that they would, um, that they would execute their office in a way to, as to, um, to protect the innocent, to uh, do what is right. Uh, to ensure that the that the justice that they've been called to uh, to meet out would be would be done, uh, and that Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom in how to live uh, with one foot here and also one foot in heaven. That we would uh, live as faithful citizens of your kingdom, even as we are ambassadors of Christ here on earth. And I pray, Father, uh, also as we come now to worship you through giving, that what we would give would be given with a right heart, because we know, Father, you don't need money. You don't need us for anything. And yet you have chosen to incorporate that into us. You have given us good gifts to use for the name of Christ. And I pray, Father, that what we do will be done in total awe of his glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids are dismissed to Gospel Project. Well, if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, or if you are blessed enough to have a Bible that the page numbers match up with the Red Pew Bible, you can find it on page 150. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in really actually with the ending of verse 5, and then reading through verse 11. As you were all coming in this morning, uh, you all passed by the welcome table, which you all know, if you paid any attention to my announcements, has sermon notes, tracks for you to take, cards with the faces and the names of our missionary partners uh, that are meant to remind you to pray for them. But you also... Oh, this didn't work. My sermon illustration is just all falling apart. You were supposed to have walked past a small black and blue brochure called Our Church Covenant. If you don't have one of those already, I do have more copies, and we're going to get those out before you go. But uh, I know that many of you, when we first got those, uh, a lot of you grabbed those, um, but if you've never gotten one, or if you've never taken time to read it, I hope that you will. We have a lot of documents that are really important to this church, but there are two that I would say, besides obviously the scriptures, two that are most important to this church, uh, which are our statement of faith 
and our church covenant. The statement of faith is important because it declares the key beliefs that hold us together as a church, that we declare as a church. If the Grace Baptist Church were a body, then those uh, that would really be the skeletal structure, the bones that are there. But a skeleton, as you know, is no good unless it is also joined together by the muscle and the ligaments that actually make the body move. And that's where the church covenant comes in. That's where we get to take belief, those faith those faithful doctrines that we hold where they get actually put into action as we make promises to one another for how we're resolved to live with one another in response to those core key beliefs which define us as a church. That covenant is intended for, to, to really serve us as a compass, to help us navigate life together in Christ as a local church. It's a set of promises that we make in response to God and to His Word. And it's meant to aid us in our pursuit of Christ, in our obedience to Christ, and really in the way that we love and serve one another. It aids us as we, uh, re- as we confess and repent of sin. And it also aids us in the way that we exercise the kingdom authority that Jesus has given to the local church as we exercise those keys that Jesus grants to his people. The reason the covenant is important is because it's the place where we see truth being put into action. It binds us in commitment to God and to each other. Now I bring that up because I think the idea of how our church covenant is meant to function is really helpful for thinking about the way this passage was meant to function in the life of Israel. These verses are focused specifically on teaching God's people what it looks like to live in a right relationship with Him and with a right relationship with each other. They are where the truth of who God is takes shape and gets put into motion in the way that we live on a daily basis. So, in coming to this passage, we actually are finding, we're actually coming into what I would call the entrance of the beating heart of the book of Deuteronomy. We may only be five chapters into this book, but this is the center of everything that is contained here. Everything that you read in the book of Deuteronomy hinges on what we're going to look at today in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, which we're going to be getting to as we continue on on our series here. All of the different laws, all the different expectations that Moses explained to the people, all of those case laws and instructions that he outlines later on in the book, everything that we read about at the end in the way that the people responded to Moses and what he said to them, all of that is really summed up and contained here. This is the mouth of the spring. In this passage, Moses reminds his listeners of the words that God spoke to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, which you can also read about in Exodus chapter 20. Typically, we call this the Ten Commandments, but it may be a little more accurate to actually call them the Ten Words, and if you really want to be scholarly, you can drop the dime piece and call it the Decalogue. These words are instructions of how God has called his people to live in the covenant that he made with them. These are God's expectations and instructions for his people, which he gave them to make them prosper and flourish in a right relationship with him. Now, I've said over and over, and I'm going to continue to beat this horse, 
until you, I want to really center your idea of what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. I've said over and over as we've done this series that in order to understand the book of Deuteronomy rightly, you have to see it through the lens of God's covenant with Israel. This is a covenant document. The The Ten Commandments aren't just a list of prohibitions that God gave to Israel. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. That is, if you're reading it that way, you're reading it wrong. These are principles for living life in response to the reality of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God. As Peter Craig says, the Decalogue was representative of God's love in that its injunctions, its instructions, both negative and positive, led not to restriction of life, but to fullness of life. It demanded a response of love, not because obedience would somehow accumulate credit in the sight of God, but because the grace of God elicited or produced such a response from man in gratitude. So, we're looking at the Ten Commandments today. Actually, we're really just looking at the introduction to the Ten Commandments and the first couple commands that have especially to do with God's expectation of how we're to live in a right relationship of love and obedience to Him, with Him, with God as our King. So, let's begin by reading our passage. If you will, once again, please stand with me as we read God's Word together, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5 beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 11. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea this morning that we want to look at from this passage is is this. Everything we do in obedience to God, we do in response to who God is. Everything you do in obedience to God is to be done in response to who God is. Living by faith, first and foremost, means living in response to the reality of who God is. The basis of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, which God spoke to Israel, in which He instructed them to live in a certain way before Him, is the reality of of his holy nature. These are not arbitrary commands. They have a root, and that root is in the excellence of who God is. That's what I want you to see today in this sermon. 
we ourselves have been instructed by God in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16, that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see how Peter there gives us instructions to live out lives that reflect the goodness of who God is, to, to seek to live holy lives like our Father who is holy. As we listen to Moses recount to the people of Israel what God said to them on Mount Sinai, we see that same structure in place. God speaking, establishing himself, showing his holiness to them, calling his people then to live in a right way before him, explaining to them what it looks like to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, and then also what it looks like to love others as ourselves. That's what we're looking at today. And I really just want to, I want to do two, I have two goals this morning, two points really for you. First, I want to establish this key doctrine for you about what God says in verse 6, that our obedience to him is done, is to be done in response to who he is. And then second, I just want to explore three particular commands that God gives here for how his people are actually called to do that. So we want to see that we are called to worship and obey God and God alone. Second, we, we see that we must worship God as He is and not as we would have Him to be. And third, we want to see that we must not bear the name of the Lord in vain. So, technically, I have four points for you this morning, but if it makes you feel better, uh, you can think about them as two points with the second point having three subpoints. So think of it how you will. Let's get started by looking at the reality of who God is and how that is the whole basis for everything we do as his people. So we want to look at the great I am. Now, if you remember back with me, if you, if you have done any study in the Old Testament, you'll remember that when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he called him to return to Egypt and to bring Israel out, Moses was more than a little surprised, was he? wasn't he? Who am I, he asked God, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a good question. God told him, but I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now that was a legitimate question because in Egypt they served a lot of different false gods. Remember what, Moses, what God tells Moses then about what to say in response if he's asked that question? I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. One of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture. 
oceans of ink have been spilled and forests of trees have given their lives explaining and examining the depth of the meaning of God's covenant name. At its most basic level, what God meant when he called himself Yahweh, the Lord, was that he is who he is and he will be who he will be. He is not able to be contained by human categories or human language. Although God created us in such a way as to know Him, to have a relationship with Him, that is not to say that we as finite creatures will ever be able to exhaust the depth of who He is or to fully comprehend the excellence of His divine nature. He was, He is, and He will be. That is what the name of the Lord means. It is no accident that when God spoke to Israel at Horeb, at the mountain, he began by declaring to them directly exactly what he said to Moses, I am the Lord. Okay? When you're reading your Bible in your devotionals, it is so easy to just speed through. When you read those three words, you are passing the Marianas Trench of the Bible. Okay, It goes all the way down. The sign that God gave to Moses did come to pass, didn't it? He really did bring the nation of Israel to worship on that holy mountain. And it was on that mountain where God spoke to Israel and declared his name to them. Where not only Moses, but the nation got to see the power and the might of God's holiness, of his purity, of his glory, of his splendor. They got to see the expression of who he is, even though the fire of his holiness was veiled, being there in front of them, and then the smoke keeping them from dying. They got to see that. By beginning here with his name, God was making a point to the people, a point to remind them that the Lord is God and there is no other. His status as God depends wholly upon who He is. God, the the title God, is not something the Lord had to earn. It is not an office that He had to achieve. It is a title that belongs to him solely because of the excellence of who he is. The Lord would have remained God even if he had chosen never to create the world. The world doesn't make God God. God's divine nature is not determined or contingent on anything outside of himself. Creation does not bestow glory on God. It merely exists to proclaim and declare it. Just as the story of creation starts with God, so also we see that the story of the ten words which God spoke to Israel, in which he laid out his expectations for how they were to live, starts there as well, with this confession that he is the Lord. And that leaves us really ready to hear the next thing that God says about himself, which is this. He says, I am the Lord, your God. So not only has God declared who he is in himself, 
But here in verse 6, we see him establishing his relationship with his people. Notice what God's doing here. Not only is he declaring that he and he alone is God, he's also extending that authority out in a living relationship with his people, a relationship that stood not just on the fact that he had created this people in his own image, although that would be sufficient, but also in the fact that he had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. This is the foundation upon which all the commands that God is about to tell Israel are founded. It explains the reason why God has authority to tell them how they are to live and how they are not to live. He is the Lord. But also, He is the Lord who had brought down, condescended to call these people by His own name, to take them for Himself and to give Himself to them. He called them by His own name and He established this special relationship with them to bless them and to make them a blessing. Now, God deserves our praise and our worship, our awe and our affection simply on the basis of who He is. The Bible explains to us how God made each of us in His own image. To know Him, to love Him, and to, in, and to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. That's something that extends to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived and who ever will live. There is a dignity to human life because of the relationship that we are called, that we were created to have with God. There is not a wasted person in this world. Every person exists for that end. But because of the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve, that relationship has been broken. And so we see why the world is not what it ought to be. Why our relationship with God, without Christ, was war. The Bible tells us the story of redemption. That God worked through history to redeem what was lost in the fall. And within that story, we have this special relationship that God established with his special people with Israel when he made his covenant with them. In that moment, God did something particularly special and gracious with them. He called them out of darkness, out of slavery, out of their own rebellion. He set his name on them and called them to be his special people, to be holy like him, to be set apart. And then he worked through them ultimately, as we follow out the storyline of the Bible, to bring the blessing of salvation that we ourselves enjoy in Christ. These commands, these words, are part of how God set Israel apart. He didn't just rescue them. He called them to be his people. And then as such, he gave them these commands in love to prosper them and to show them the way of life. In one verse, God, showed, God shows his people how great and glorious he is, and yet also how tender and merciful and great he is to save them as his people. God is a savior of the broken, a restorer of the lost, and a redeemer of sinners. Above all, this is what defined Israel as a people, and it continues to define the people of God today. God chose Israel. He rescued them. He called them out. He took them out of a corrupt and evil kingdom and then brought him into his own, set his name on them, and blessed them and made them a blessing. 
And he has done all this now on an even greater scale, fulfilling the hope of all who have come before by sending Jesus Christ, his own son, into the world with authority to rescue and secure an eternal kingdom of glory which is in the heavens. This is who God is. And everything we are called to do in faith and obedience is centered on that reality. We see that especially here in the Ten Commandments. That brings us to see our second point, which is these three commands for responding to the God who is. All the commandments which God said to Israel at Mount Horeb or at Horeb on Mount Sinai were founded on the reality of who He is. And that brings us really uh, to, as I said, to these commandments. And the thing is, so I thought about preaching all the way through the Ten Commandments. And I thought if I was doing that, I would be doing a, you would say, a severe disjustice. I also thought that I can't really take ten Sundays to preach through each commandment because we will be in the book of Deuteronomy until I die. So, here we go. We're just going to take, take three of them together. So this is not the fullness of it, but this is, these are three, and we're just going to focus on that today. So three ways we are called to respond, live, to live in response to the reality of who our great God is. First, we worship and obey God and God alone. We worship God alone. You shall have no other gods before me, God says in verse 7. Very plainly, what that means is that our worship and our obedience belongs to God and God alone. Now, you probably have a footnote there at the bottom of your Bible that says something like, besides. So, what, what the translator is telling you is that you could read this, you shall have no other gods besides me. Now, that translation very accurately communicates to us that the Lord alone is God. That's not wrong. That's, that's true. There are no other gods beside the Lord. However, before me is actually, I think, the better translation. And it's there to do something about the way we think about God. When God told Israel, you shall have no other gods before me, he was making it clear for them to understand that he is not a chief God among other gods. God's rule, his authority, his goodness is his and his alone. He does not share his glory with another. There are no other competitors to his throne. In the culture that surrounded Israel at this point in history, you, you, you had this idea that the gods ruled in sort of a, a pantheon or in a divine assembly. Some people still have that kind of view of God today where they view the devil as on par of God, just the bad version. That is not the way this works. God is God and God alone. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, God is really distinguishing the reality of his rule from the false idea that sovereignty in any part belongs to anyone else but him. Now, it may be a little bit difficult for us to see how big this command really was. This command absolutely set the Israelites apart from everyone else. It set them apart from the Egyptians, from the Philistines, from the Canaanites, from the Greeks, from the Romans, from the Babylonians, from anyone. Okay? This command demanded that Israel set its hope exclusively in God and in God alone. Given what we know about who God is, I think this command seems pretty obvious. There are no other gods, and therefore God alone is exclusively deserving of our allegiance, our worship, our love, and our trust. 
The thing is, Israel really struggled with this. In fact, they broke this command from the get-go before they even had time to get to the promised land. We struggle with this command too, whether we realize it or not. Because we are so often tempted to want to add to God, to try and hedge our bet, so to speak. We are constantly being tempted to trust other saviors besides Jesus. When things don't go the way that we want them to, we get angry. We talk about how things aren't fair. We start to question whether or not God is really good or whether he isn't really in control. And so we find ourselves looking for ways to take control ourselves. That's seeking after other gods. That's seeking security and safety and fulfillment in things that are other than him. The pantheon of money, pleasure, Control, security, and influence is constantly calling us to come and sacrifice at its altars. So the first command that God gives his people is the first command that needs to reign in our own hearts, which is to trust him and him alone. It is to entrust ourselves to Jesus as he declares in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is to devote ourselves with that conviction to pursuing Him and obeying Him and loving Him and submitting to Him. This first command is a command to forsake all other hopes, to trust exclusively in an exclusive God who gave us His own Son, who saved us through the blood of His cross and called us out of darkness into the light of His life and his glory to live as sons and daughters of the king. So that is our first call. Our second command that we're given to respond to the reality of who God is is that we must worship God as he is and not as we would have him to be. So often we like to create gods in our own image or to recreate God, our understanding of God, in a way that's more convenient to where we are right now. In verses 8 through 10, God continues and commands his people not to make any sort of idol or image to worship or represent him. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, God says, or any likeness that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, here's the thing. There's a really big debate, and I would be really surprised if any of you are aware of, and I'm not going to go into it, about how we actually order the Ten Commandments. I know that sounds shocking. So I'm mentioning that because I think in order to understand the heart of these first, what we think of as the first two commandments, we need to understand them as they're, they're both part of one command. Okay? So Protestants have typically counted this as the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. There's actually a great weight of evidence from the grammar that this is still part of the first commandment. So, there's a big debate about that. There's also a big debate about whether or not God is saying you shouldn't have anything carved or any sort of art in your house. And people debate on that. I'm just going to cut through a lot of that debate to say that the heart of this command has to do specifically with worshiping God in a right way. Okay? That is the heart of this command is to worship God as he is and it's not to reduce him down or to try to change him to be what we would have him to be. 
without going into those grammar arguments, I think you can see, see that actually well in the way that this set of instructions is keenly and closely connected with the fact that the Lord alone is God. In the ancient world, idols were associated with the presence of the God they represented. They were used in the worship of that God, and they were reverenced as if that deity were somehow present in it. So they would dress the statues, they would do all sorts of things for the statues, because they thought, well, this God will see this happening, and they'll see how much reverence we have for them, and they give us what we want. God expressly prohibits using any sort of graven image to represent his presence or to be used in his worship here. That's the heart of the command. Look at verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's severe, friends. You see what God, how serious God takes his worship? It's not just, I don't want you to have a statue. It's, don't reduce me down to this. I'm not that. You worship me as I am. My presence will be there. This isn't a command that's saying we can't have art. It's not saying that we can't represent things of the created order. It is saying that those things must never be thought or used to represent God. Those things can't contain Him. To abandon the true living God in favor of something that we can control is the very height of rebellion and hatred against him. That's why God gives that, that warning there of how he treats those who hate him. It is the heart of sin and the heart of the flesh to try and control God, to use our own designs. And that is why God outlines the cost the consequences of justice that come on those who hate him, even while affirming his love for those who do love and obey him. If we read this together with what we've already seen in verse 7, we see two sides of one command. That there is no other God beside the Lord, and that he is to be worshipped and approached accordingly in his holiness. That means that we have to come to him through the means that he has appointed. That means that we must resist that impulse to try to reduce God down to something that is within our grasp, within our control. That he depends on us somehow, or that somehow we can get him to give us what we want. This keeps us from seeking a mediator besides Christ to be between us and God. Because God has only appointed one mediator to be between him and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 1 explains, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Brothers and sisters, our sinful flesh is thirsty for control, which is why we try to satisfy that and other things. That is why Calvin says, our hearts are such idle factories shaping images of God that look like us, which we can control, which we can call out 
which, which call out to us really for our worship, all the while the God who is commands us to come to Him, to trust Him, to find true security in His eternal promises, which He has brought about and established in His own beloved Son, King Jesus. And that brings us to our third command about how we're to rightly respond to who God is. We must not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Now, the spirit of this command is the same as the one before it. There's a lot of power in a name. Now, I challenge... I don't, I'm going to be... No, I'm going to be careful here. If you're married, I'm not going to challenge you. You can decide whether or not you want to try this on your own. If you're married, you know that if you call your spouse by their full name, you are going to get a response, aren't you? Now, it may not be the response you want, but you will have their attention. Names in the Bible are a big deal. They're a big deal in our lives. They're especially a big deal in the Scriptures. In creation, God brought the animals to Adam. He set Adam on this position to be a steward of creation. And then as an exercise of that authority, he brought, Adam, he brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. And so whatever he called them, we're told that was its name. Adam exercises sort of authority as a steward of God's creation, and, in, and, and we see that in the way he named those animals. Likewise, we, we have instances where God changed people's names, like when he, what he did with Abram, when he named him Abraham, and what he did with Sarai, when he named her Sarah. God did that in part, pointing to who he was and what he was doing in bringing his purposes about. He did that also to show the authority and the relationship that he had with them, that it was unique and important. In verse 11, God tells Israel, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, a lot of people take this as God saying that we shouldn't blaspheme his name by saying it in an, un an unworthy way. And that is certainly true. God's name should be treated with respect and with worship, with awe. God's name is not an expletive. God is saying, though, when we see him warning about taking his name in vain, God is saying so much deeper than just the words that come out of your mouth. This is deeper than cussing. To take God's name, the way it's described here, is more like bearing God's name. Think about the way that a wife takes a husband's name or a child receives their last name from their parents. That name identifies that person. They start to bear it publicly. What they do either honors that name or it brings dishonor to that name. That's the spirit of this command. To bear the name of the Lord is, is to say something about God with the way you live. When God called Israel out and set them apart to be his special people, he attached his name to them. Likewise, when a person trusts Christ, they are joined to them. If you're a Christian, you bear Jesus' name on yourself. So when you go into the restaurant, what you do there says something about Jesus. When you cut somebody off in your car and you have an ichthus on the back, you're saying something wrong about Jesus. You are when you're bearing Jesus' name, you're identifying with him. 
His righteousness has become your righteousness. Your sin was laid on Him as He paid for it in His death. Your your hope now is in His name. And what you do, you do in His name as one of His disciples. Whether you do it thoughtlessly or whether you do it intentionally. So understand the gravity of what it means to bear the name of the Lord. And then understand the true spirit of this command. In Exodus 20, verse 7, the command that God gives is this, You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh your God worthlessly. God is telling the people not to take his name and to represent him by acting in a way that is opposed to who he is. Now, Titus and Rebekah, they both bear mine and Ellie's names. What they do when we are public reflects on us as parents. I remember my parents making a very strong point to me about that as a kid. Honoring my parents meant living out a way, living out what they were teaching me at home. It meant honoring the name. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt, he called them by his name. God doesn't just say, I am the Lord God. I'm the Lord, your God. You see how he attached that? He declared to them that he was their God and they were his people. That was the whole purpose of the covenant. This command not to bear the name of the Lord deceitfully or in an unworthy manner was important because as God's chosen people, the way that the people acted had a direct effect on the fame of God's name among the nations of the world. If God's people had been called and set apart to tell the world about His glory, their actions better do that, right? God called Israel and set them on a hill, set them up like a city on a hill to shine. He redeemed them and adopted them. He made them His children. This command was to live that reality out. In a similar way, those who, have been, who are in Christ, we have been called by His name. The command to Israel is the same given to us. Our lives are meant to reflect the reality of who He is. Our words, yes. Our words must honor Him. But also our actions. Those are meant to tell the truth that God is a God of holiness and love. He is the Lord, the great I Am, who loved us even while we were yet sinners and sent His own Son to die for us, and raised Him up on the third day, and has exalted Him at His right hand, so that all who believe in His name and trust in Him will be saved. Bearing the name of Christ means living in such a way as to point people to King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we serve a great and a good God, don't we? He has spoken, He has revealed Himself to us, in such a way that we can know Him, in such a way that we can trust Him, and in such a way that we can live in Him. As we seek to honor Him with our lives, let us listen to Him and obey Him by putting away all other saviors. Let us trust that the cross is enough for us, and let us bear the name of Christ to the nations so that sinners everywhere would know the God who is. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for this passage that we've gotten to explore this morning. Because you, you haven't just exposed your glory to us and then said, all right, figure it out. You know, you have given us your instruction. You've made it very clear. 
At the same time, Father, as we read these commands, we feel the weakness of our own flesh. We feel the passions of the flesh that are at war with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit that we have in Christ, that want to render us inert, that want to make us live for those old things. Father, even this morning, we confess to you, we have sinned. We have fallen short of your glory. We have not loved as you called us to love. We have not necessarily, in all the things we've done today, borne your name well. We want to confess that to you, Father. We also want to thank you that your forgiveness is true and that it stands because we have a righteous Savior, King Jesus, who stands always making intercession for us. Thank you, Father, for his completed work. Thank you that we don't have to ask questions about whether or not we will receive eternal life if we're in him, but that we have this sure promise from you that all who trust in Christ will be saved. Thank you. And Father, also we pray that we would bear your image well, bear the name well, that your spirit would be there throughout the week with us in those times when we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to hate our brother, when we're tempted to act in our own, act for our own glory, when we're tempted to bear our own name instead of yours, that that would we'd stop us in our tracks and keep us from defaming the name that you've called us in. And rather, Father, we pray that the people who see us this week would know your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our song of response this morning is Great is Thy Faithfulness, which I think is an appropriate way to respond to what we've seen this morning. So if you would, please stand as we sing and praise our great God and King. Let's sing.